Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles. Make your way, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 is where we'll find our text for our message here this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at a, uh, a unique passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul uh, gives to us. And I've always found this passage fascinating. But uh, within this passage is a very needed message for the people of God in every generation. And the title of the message is, The Sufficiency of God's Grace. The Sufficiency of God's Grace. So let's begin reading here at, first, at 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and uh, verse number 1, and we'll come down through verse number 10. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. How many of us have ever been in a state of weakness? A state of weakness. A time when you were in pain or suffering or affliction. A time when... You wish things seem to be out of sync and you wish they got back to normal or back to the way they should be or the way you think they ought to be. You see, it's in these times that we are indeed weak. We do not feel strong, do we? We feel our own mortality and how powerless our life truly is. It's in these times, though, that really the greatest moments of our Christian life come to be is in those times of weakness, in those times of trial, in those times of affliction. You say, well, why is that? Because it is when we are weak that God manifests His strength. It is when we are weak that He manifests His power, and it shines through in our lives and uh, by means of His providence and His working. And this is what Paul brings to our attention in this text. In the previous chapter leading up to this passage before us, Paul spoke of some glorying that others had been doing and how if anyone could truly boast or had reason to boast, 
It really would have been Paul. I think he mentions that in another book, where if anyone has reason to boast in a physical and natural way, certainly it would be me, wouldn't it? See, Paul endured more than most and accomplished more than most, yet Paul does not seek to glory in what most would glory in. In verse 30, you see that leading into the context of chapter 12, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Not in the things that I think would be strong, but in the things that show my weakness. How opposite is that to most people today? Most people want to boast of their strengths, the aspects of their life that they think they are good at. We are naturally prone to puff ourselves up in our accomplishments, in our abilities, in our perspectives of things. But Paul is not this way. Paul boasts about his weaknesses instead of his strengths. And so in our text, he expounds further upon the reality as he reveals an experience that he had that truly gave him great reason for boasting. But even that he doesn't really boast in. He boasts in the weakness that he is experiencing. And it's in the weakness that he experiences through this affliction that Paul learns something. Something we all should learn and we will learn throughout our Christian life. And that is the great sufficiency of God's grace for all of life, whether you're in a time of affliction or not, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley. The grace of God, Christian, is sufficient for you. And that is the central message here I want you to see as we come through this text so notice what we see in Paul, and I, and I point out and break down the text in three, three main headings this morning, and I pray we can glean some things that would be, be good for our Christian life. Notice with me, number one, the thing we see is the revelation given to Paul. The revelation given to Paul in this text, and as he mentions in other, uh, of other forms of revelation, but notice this specific revelation which is unique to Paul. I want you to see firstly that He was caught up into paradise. Now you just pause and ponder that for a moment. Paul in his mortal life in this world had a moment, an experience in which he was caught up into paradise. It's it's a fascinating testimony to me. He tells us uh, about something nearly any one of us would boast about if it happened to us. Verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that his boasting, it doesn't bring any advantage or profit, but still he's going to go on in this text and tell us something that if he wanted to boast, he surely could have boasted about it. And he is doing this because of the context through chapter 11. There are certain individuals, opponents, who boast of their spiritual experiences as well as their ethnic identity. And and so Paul here, he, he brings this out to show that there's really nothing worth boasting about when it's all said and done. But notice with me in verse number 1. He says, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now I want you to just think about that experience in itself. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. You see, Paul was very unique in how God worked with him and used him. Paul experienced a conversion experience that was unique to pretty much everyone, right? We remember how Paul was converted. He's on his way to Damascus, and his hard-hearted, high horse he rides. 
And Jesus strikes him down, dead in his tracks, and shows Paul how wrong he is. Though he's persecuting Christians, and Paul thought he was right, he was so wrong. He comes to see that Christ, the one he's persecuting, he really is the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, the one whom, whom God promised would come. And so, so Paul experiences this, and he's saved by Christ right there by grace alone and, and called him into service. But, but from then on throughout the ministry of Paul, he also had the privilege of hearing directly from the Lord on a level that other Christians didn't get to experience. Now, part of this is because he did hold the office of an apostle. The apostle. That was a limited office to that day and time. Romans 1.1, Paul says of his calling in this way, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so we know that apostles, they were given direct revelation from the Lord about truth to reveal it and communicate it to the churches. And because of that apostleship and the revelation that they had, you understand by means of God working through them, we're reading the Word of the living God today. Use them to pen it for us, inspired it and preserved it for us. But notice as we come down into this text in verse 2 through 4, notice that we see in, in this passage Paul's description of this great revelation experience he had. This was not the usual revelation as in hearing from the Lord and, and being able to speak on behalf of the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, some have wondered, who's Paul talking about? Is he talking about someone else? Is he talking about himself? Well, it becomes very obvious from verse 5 and verse 7 that he is indeed talking about himself. He's talking about himself. Reporting what happened to someone else that he knows would completely be irrelevant to his argument. So, this is about him. This is something he experienced. But the question is, why did Paul speak in the third person? Well, some have speculated about this, and I'll share a couple of ideas here. Paul may have been falling back on one of the conventional Jewish ways of trying to conceal something that was very holy. So he doesn't speak uh, on, on behalf of himself in the first person. The Jews later in their tradition, they, they considered visionary accounts as something very sacred and dangerous for public display in this sort of a way. That could be it, maybe not. The use of the third person, maybe he's using that to derive from the nature of the experience, of, experience itself. It was such an overwhelming event. He is not sure if, it was, if he was in his body or out of his body. Maybe he's describing it that way. But I tend to think here that in this account, he's showing forth this way because he has no desire to boast in this man who had this experience. He doesn't seek to use this experience as an advantage for his own gain and superiority and popularity and, and gaining, gaining recognition among the churches or the brethren. And so this is what Paul's doing. It seems that he's speaking in a way as, so that he's not bringing attention to himself, but to a man who, in Christ. Now, the focus of this passage, understand, it is indeed upon the Lord's work in causing Paul to have this revelation. It is not of Paul himself. Because Paul's central focus 
in all of his life and ministry, as you read through the Scriptures, it's undeniable. The glory he sought was not his own ever. He always sought the glory of Christ. And may I say that that is the conviction every Christian, every minister ought to bear is the glory of Christ being preeminent to all they do and say. It's not about us, friend. It is always about Christ. The reason I'm saved... Christ, not Joseph. The reason I preach, Christ, not Joseph. The reason you can do what you do in your Christian life, Christ, not you. We owe everything to the glory and name of Christ. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Glory in Him alone. But regardless of the reason Paul is speaking of himself in this way, he speaks of himself 14 years ago. That stuck, stuck out to me, and I'll bring it out in just a moment. But that this would have been sometime between A.D. 42 and 44, probably when he was around Tarsus or Antioch at that point in his ministry, this would have been prior to his first missionary journey. You go to the book of Acts, you can kind of see where he starts that first missionary journey. He had this revelation prior to that first missionary journey. And notice specifically what happens to Paul. In verse 2, what does he say? He says, I was caught up. He was caught up to the third heaven. And then he describes that same instance in verse 4, saying he was caught up into paradise. Now, this is interesting to me. The word caught up here is the Greek term harpazo. And it means to grab or seize suddenly so as to remove or gain control, to snatch away. It's the same word used by Paul to describe when Christ returns and those that are still alive on the earth are, you have the resurrection of the dead and those that still live, they're caught up to Him in the air as He's descending down in His second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, he writes to them and says, Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. So this is the same term. This is, the, this is what happens to Paul. He's snatched up, up into heaven, up into the third heaven. I find it also interesting that this also is the same word used when Philip disappeared before the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter number 8. If you read that passage, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, how God called him and led him down to this place to witness to the eunuch, and he was saved and baptized... But in Acts 8, 39 and 40, we, we read when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That's the same term as caught up. Same Greek word. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel in all the towns that he came to Caesarea. So this is a miraculous, almost transfer of Philip to one place to another. Philip didn't walk over to Arosa or whatever that town's called. He was placed over there. The first time I saw that, I was like, man, we think about, man, I wish I could teleport to different places. You know, how easy would that be, right? He didn't have to get on a donkey or a camel or walk that way. The Spirit of God just took him over there. And so he found himself in this place, which is further away, and, he, and, he's, and he's sharing the gospel in these, these towns next to the coast. But both here, understand, they were instantly transported to another place. And for Paul, where is he transported to? He's transported to the third heaven. The third heaven. What's the third heaven? Is there a first heaven? Is there a second heaven? This is basically 
rooted in Jewish tradition and terminology and understanding the heavens and ultimately heaven itself. They had one, the first heaven, the atmosphere where birds can be seen and fly. They would refer to that as the first heaven. The higher area where the sun and the moon and stars can be seen, they would refer to that as the second heaven. And then the unseen realm where God dwells, they would refer to that as the third heaven. But notice how Paul describes the third heaven. What does he call it? He says he was caught up into where? Paradise. You remember what Jesus told the thief a few weeks ago? He said, this day you will be with me where? In paradise. Paradise. The realm where God is. Paradise refers to a a transcendent place of blessedness. It's, this particular word actually is a, a Persian loan word used in the Septuagint that refers back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was paradise in the beginning. But paradise as we know it, in the context and in Scripture here, it refers to the blessedness of God's presence in heaven. And so we think of paradise for a moment. We often like to think of our vacation spot as paradise, you know, whether that's at the beach or in the woods hunting or whatever, Right? We enjoy those areas. We enjoy time there. But that kind of paradise doesn't, it's not even worth being compared to the paradise of the presence of Christ. The presence of Jesus. The presence of God. This is what we look forward to. So what was this experience like for Paul? Notice what he says. He says twice in this text, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He's not even really sure of, 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 the, of, of what he was like while he was in this place. Was he in his body? Was he out of his body? He's unsure of it. He rests, God knows. That's all I can say. God knows. It was a very unique experience. And one that's great to ponder. But notice with me letter B. With such a revelation given to the Apostle Paul being caught up into paradise, what do you think this would tempt or cause in any man? Pride. He had cause for pride. He had cause or reason to be prideful. If anybody had, uh, had, had root in him of what he's experienced, what he's done, surely it was Paul who could say, oh, man, I got to experience this, and I got to do this, and I've accomplished this. But that's not what we see. But think about it just for a moment. If you had had this experience, this perspective, this experience of revelation, would that change or impact your perspective going forward in your life and in your ministry if you were Paul? Absolutely it would. This was a cherished experience by Paul. It was very life-changing. And given such an experience, this would be great cause for boasting. Wouldn't most people proudly proclaim of such an experience? You know, usually when you hear stories from people, they... They usually want to bring out experiences they've had or things they've done or places they've gone. And there's nothing wrong with sharing those, but we naturally like to talk about those sorts of things, right? If you had been caught up to heaven, wouldn't you just be chomping at the bit to tell somebody about it, to tell someone? We would, right? We see a lot of that even in our day and time, don't we? How many books and movies have been made by those who have had, and I will quote-unquote this, visits to heaven and back? We hear of many modern-day visits to heaven. What are those experiences? Well, I'm not going to speak dogmatically, but one thing I do know is they make a lot of money off the movies and books. I'm not saying that if God wanted to give someone that kind of experience that, he, that it couldn't happen. 
What I am saying, we've got to be cautious about heeding those kinds of things. Why is that? Look at Paul and what he says with this. In verse 4, he says, He heard things that cannot be told which a man may not utter. There may be some mystery in interpreting what he means by that. But what Paul is saying, I went to heaven and came back, and I was not allowed to say what I had saw and heard. It wasn't allowed. And here's what I want you to see about Paul and his humility with this. And this is, we'll see how this ties into the end of the text. But consider this. For 14 years, Paul has not made this experience known or a focus of his teaching. As some would have done. What's his focus on through his whole life and ministry? Christ. The gospel of Christ. Can you imagine this? For 14 years, he's not made this known. This is the only recorded writing of this experience in Scripture or other writings of that time. This is the only one. For 14 years, Paul never said a word about it. Never said a word about it. But instead, his entire focus was set upon Christ. What does that show you about Paul? His wholehearted motive and mission Christ alone, not bringing attention to Himself, but to the Savior alone, to the Lord alone. And the only reason He brings it up now is because of the circumstances of these other boasters, boasting vainly, in which He reveals this. In verse 5, you notice what He says, On behalf of this man I will not boast. What man? The man in Christ who went up to heaven and came back. The man who had that revelation. On the behalf of this man, I will boast. But on, my own be- I will not, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weakness. You see, the man uh, in the third person, Paul will boast about, because it was a mysterious work of Christ. It was Christ's doing. But Paul will not boast in his weaknesses before people. He will only boast, I mean. He will only boast in his weaknesses before people. Because he does not glory in this experience as something that was of Him, but was of the Lord alone. If you look at verse 6, he said, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for, if it, for, if I, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. Paul could at any moment taken this revelation and just boasted about it. He could have. And if he had done so, he would have had the right to do so, because it was his experience, right? Nobody else did. It was his. But for 14 years, he didn't say a word about it. 14 years, he did not say a word about it. Paul didn't want people to get the wrong idea. Notice that he says, But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. See, Paul didn't want people to get the wrong idea about him, thinking him to be some kind of a a superior Christian or better blessed than others. There's a lot of that kind of mentality in today's world. Well, well, I'm this, and I'm that, and I know this, and I've done this, and accomplished this within the realm of Christianity. It's vain boasting. It's vanity, friend. Vanity. Paul has a different kind of mind. He did not want want people to think that he was somehow better or, 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 or more knowledgeable than them. He wanted them to see him as the weak, dependent man that he is upon a mighty Savior. Because that's the truth for all of us. There are no strong us. We are weak in our flesh. The only strength we have is in Christ alone. 
Only Christ. We naturally puff ourselves up, boasting in various things that we think are notable. But notice what Paul says to the, to the Galatians. In Galatians 6.3, he says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And the truth is about me, I am nothing without Christ. I better not dare think myself to be something. When everything I am is of Christ alone and not myself. Let us take that to heart. As we'll see in just a moment, Paul's humility is pretty much a guaranteed because of what God does in his life. But to sum up this point, Paul's experience, his great privilege, it was a miracle in his own life. Now, we've not experienced the same thing he did, but we've been tremendously blessed as God's people in many other ways, haven't we? What happens when we experience the blessedness of our Christian life? We can easily become comfortable and conceited if we're not careful. This was a true danger to Paul, because he is just a mortal man. It's a danger to every Christian. So how does God remedy this? God gives him this great revelation that he could easily boast about and flaunt and exalt himself with. How does Paul remedy this? I mean, how does God remedy this? Notice with me, number two, we see the resistance given to Paul. There's a resistance that is given to Paul. What is this resistance? Paul was given a thorn of suffering, of affliction. Paul was given a thorn of suffering. He gives insight into something that is extremely personal in his life that probably maybe some others didn't know about. But it was very important to him. It was part of his life. In verse 7, you'll notice what he says. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. I want to just point out that phrase. What is this thorn? Well, it's clear from the term thorn that it's something unpleasant and painful. Any of us ever been on the hiking trail and run into a thorn bush? When you run into a thorn bush, don't you rejoice with glee and happiness and, man, that feels good. No, you don't. And I hate running into thorn bushes. They stick in you and they cause pain and irritation. And so Paul has something, a thorn in his flesh that is, that is painful to him, that is, that is an affliction. Now there's been a lot of speculation as to what this thorn in the flesh might be since he doesn't name it specifically. I'll share with you a few possibilities that some have mentioned. Some have thought that maybe it was Paul's just inner mind struggles, such as grief over persecuting the church, as if that kind of haunted him, maybe. Some think that maybe it's Paul's opponents, people who are persecuting him, causing him harm and danger. Some have supposed that it's some kind of a physical affliction, possibly poor eyesight, malaria fever, or problems with severe migraines of some nature, that some kind of, some kind of health issue. Some think it's just some kind of a demonic harassment, just in general. Now, most lean towards the latter two possibilities, and I would lean towards the latter two possibilities as well. I think that the thorn of Paul in the flesh indicates there's something in his mortal body giving him problems. And it seems most probable that it's a physical issue. Now, we can maybe glean some things from other texts, and this is somewhat speculation, but I'll share with you a text in Galatians that might give some light on this. Galatians 4, verse 13 through 15. Galatians 4, verse 13 through 15. And notice what Paul says to the Galatians. And remember, Galatians is one of the earlier books of the Bible. Paul's revelation and this thorn was given to him before he went on his first missionary journey. 
It had been before he went to Galatia. But notice he's writing to them afterwards, but here's what we read. In verse number 13 through 15, he says, You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul gives us a little hint about some personal struggles he's going through. We know, firstly, it's a physical ailment. He has a physical affliction here. It was a physical affliction that was even a trial to the Galatians while he was there. That's what he says. But notice, even with his physical affliction, they received the Word of God from him as if Jesus was giving it himself. But we see a little more insight there as you come on down. And he says in verse 15, he testifies that to the Galatians, if, if they could have just gouged out their eyes and given them to him, they would have done that. What's that indicate? It means that he had bad eyesight. I think this is further indicated back in verse, in verse uh, 11 of chapter 6. Paul says to them at the end of his letter, you see, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. The book of Galatians, the original letter, was the first large print Bible. You want to get down to the bare facts of it. How many of us are thankful for large print Bibles, right? Now, if, if bad eyesight was his, was his issue, uh, that, that's miserable. You got to see, right? I, I'm... Struggle with eyesight, having glasses, i got stigmatism every year, got to get a new prescription. I'll be glad when I get my heavenly body, I don't have to worry about that no more, aren't you? All of our physical afflictions be gone. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic that that's the thorn. It could have been something else, but this is where some lean to because of his other references. But where did this thorn come from? Understand, where did this thorn come from in our text? We read in our text in verse 7 that by God's providence... The inflammation of this thorn came through a messenger of Satan. The word messenger is the same word used for angel. Angel. It's an ascendant power who carries out various missions or tasks. So, so this is the word angel. And in this context, being an angel of Satan, a fallen angel. A demonic force. You say, well, wait a minute. Can God use and allow the forces of Satan to affect his people and affect things in the world? Absolutely, he does. The greatest example of this comes from the book of Job, the very earliest writing of Scripture. Job, great, righteous, upright man in the sense that he was faithful to God and, and God had prospered and blessed him. But Satan comes to God and asks for Job. He doesn't ask for Job. He insinuates that, well, Job's got this hedge of protection, and, and, and God says, have you considered Job? Job? God puts Job in Satan's sights, providentially. We know that Satan, by God's permission, took away his home, his wealth, his family, except for his wife, which she wasn't a good help either, if you know the story. But Job 2.7, he comes again, and there's a second round of affliction brought to Job. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome 
soars from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. You talk about the pain of physical affliction, and this is brought on by Satan himself. Now, Satan works in many ways in the world and in our lives. Satan comes as God's adversary to lure people away from God's rule, or he may come as God's proxy to implement trials that God authorizes. You must understand this. Though Satan is a great adversary to God's people, understand he has limitations in what he's allowed to do. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. He said, Satan can only do what the sovereign God allows him to do. And this is what's fascinating, is that in God's providence and purpose, the messenger of Satan was allowed and ordained to harass Paul. Harass him. The word used for harass here literally means to cause physical impairment. That's the definition of the Greek word. This is the intention of this messenger of Satan. And this messenger of Satan, understand, probably thinks that, yeah, God's given me an opportunity to hinder Paul, this great apostle. God, you understand that this is somewhat of a paradox. God permits Satan to strike Paul weakening Paul, which in turn makes Paul into a greater instrument for the glory of Christ. doesn't matter what Satan thinks he can get away with and do, God is sovereign over him. And I praise God for that. God is working things for His purposes. And so you understand in the, in the same vein and understanding, this is what we as Christians must see. The thorns that we experience in life, they are divinely providential. Always for a purpose greater than you can probably immediately see. Now sometimes you may get a little glimpse and see how God worked. Sometimes you might not. But what we know is that by faith, God is sovereign over everything in our lives. Letter B, notice we see the reason. The resistance given to him was a thorn in the flesh, but notice Paul was given a thorn for humility. This is the purpose of God giving him this thorn, allowing this to happen in his life, is for humility. Now, notice that Paul specifically knows this because it's been revealed to him. In verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to harass me. Notice he says the reason twice in this verse. To keep me from becoming conceited. He knows this. Paul knows that he's not above becoming proud and conceited. He knows this. And given his heavenly visit, it would be easy to become high-minded. Over-elation from this incredible experience, being allowed to enter into paradise would easily lead to the inflation of one's ego so that one feels superior to others who did not have such a thing. But God knows this, doesn't He? Doesn't God know how to humble us? God knows how to humble His people. He does, doesn't He? God, God brought the elated Paul down to earth and pinned him to the earth with a thorn. That's what He did. You see, when all is going well in our life, it's easy to be inflated. When we've accomplished much, it's easy to be inflated. When we've acquired much, it's easy to be inflated. But when something uncomfortable or painful enters into our life, the bubble of pride and self-confidence pops. And it needs to pop. 
God knows how to humble His people. But I hope you can see what this thorn is doing to Paul. It's humbling him, making him weak in his own strength. And anytime you and I are physically impaired in any way, we feel weak. We feel weak, miserable. Just ask Bethany. Anytime I get a cold, I'm about to die. It's the way it is. I'm on the verge of death. Like any form of suffering, we long to be rid of it, don't we? We long to be rid of it. We want it gone. And that brings us to verse 8. What's Paul do here? Look at verse 8. Notice he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. You understand that Paul, three times, is on his knees. He is begging God, please take this away. Take this away. Have you ever pleaded with God or even someone else for something? When we plead, that means we're desperate. We really want something. Something earnest in our heart. You know, my children make me laugh. Sometimes when they plead with me for something they want, it's somewhat humorous. Sometimes they plead about something that I can give them. Maybe it's a piece of candy or something, you know, that sure, you can have this. But then sometimes they come to me with some ridiculous requests. (laughs) They plead and plead and plead. But I know that it would be very wrong for me to get David a BB gun at his age, right? Or any other sort of thing that's beyond his limitation or would be dangerous to him and others. So you guess what? As the father I am and trying to have wisdom with my children, the answer is no. Loving, no. Did you know that God is our Heavenly Father, He know, who knows what is best for us, sometimes will say no to our pleading? And did you know that when the Father says no to our pleading, that's the best place to be, even in your affliction? Even in your affliction. You know why? Because it's His providence that that is happening. It's His providence. And Paul comes to truly understand this. this the, the believer understands this This is what we find here. We have to realize this, that our suffering is always for a purpose and that though we suffer, God's love and presence to His people, it hasn't changed. Just because you're in affliction doesn't mean that, oh, God's against you or mad at you or or, or maybe you're in chastisement. If you're in sin and there's, there's judgment on you, you need to repent and get that right. But at some times, it's not chastisement, it's affliction for His own providential purpose and for your own good. If you go read Romans 8 and verse 28 through 29, I'll read this briefly. It's a lengthy passage, but just to give you the big picture. We often hear Romans 8, 28 quoted, but it's good to see the broader context. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things. What does all things include? All things. Even the afflictions, even the bad stuff, includes those, right? He says, all things work together for bad. Nope. All things work together for good, for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's your golden chain of salvation right there. 
from beginning to end, eternity past, eternity future. But in the midst of that, Paul is saying that all things work to good for those who are called according to His purpose, and that good is ultimately that we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ, made more to His likeness. But as you read on down, he gives this comfort and assurance of God towards His people. In verse 31, he says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, if God's presence is with you, even in your affliction... You have nothing to fear. Notice what he says in verse 32. He who did not spare up his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's too much to unpack there in the little time we have, but I hope you see the big picture here. That God in His providence works things for good, even the bad things, for His people. We have an expected end that we look forward to. It's already been assured. That is, we will be made like unto Christ, glorified. And in between all of us, understand, all these things that Paul notes here, death and peril and sword and, and, and angels and life and, and powers, all anything in creation, none of those things can separate you from the love of God. You know why? Because the love upon you as God's people, it's an eternal love. And that which never began to never ceased to be, it's an eternal love. It's been ongoing. And so though our suffering, no matter what form it may be, through it, we are humbled. We realize we are weak and we realize we're not in control. Only God is powerful. Only God is in control. We know that He uses His grace to humble us. Notice with me number three. We see the reason given to Paul. Paul doesn't, God doesn't leave Paul in the dark. He says, I'm doing this to you just because. No, He gives him the reason. He gives him the reason why this affliction, why this thorn in the flesh is bothering him and part of his life now. Here's the first aspect of the reason. Letter A, God's grace was to be Paul's sufficiency. God's grace. Verse 9, what does he say? Paul said, I pleaded three times, take it away, Lord. But God responded, verse 9 said, My grace is sufficient for you. What does sufficiency mean? It means it's all that we need. It fills every void. It's all that we need. So, so what does God mean by this? What is this grace? You understand grace is the undeserved and unearned Favor of God. Blessing of God. 
It's by grace alone that we are saved from our sins. Paul knew this. He knew the grace of God in salvation when he was converted. But understand, Christian, God's grace is not only what saves us, His grace is also what sustains us and strengthens us. Grace permeates the life of the Christian from beginning to end. There's not one point in your life where grace departs from you. God's grace is the sufficient strength for Paul. Grace is what keeps us going to the end, even through suffering or through comfort. A good snapshot of this truth, I think, is seen with God's words to Israel through Isaiah the prophet. He says in Isaiah 43, 1-2, he says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. You know what God is promising? He's reminding Israel, I chose you, I called you, you're mine, I'm with you, my presence is with you, no matter where you're at and what you're going through. Isn't that a wonderful promise to the people of God as we look at the New Testament principle of that? Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, he says, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know what the day of Jesus Christ is? The day of Jesus Christ is the very last day, the final day of all history, in which we enter into the eternal state. You know what, what Paul's saying here? He who began the good work in you, and your conversion and salvation and what he's doing in your life, that's not going to stop until the very end. There's never a moment in your Christian life in which God departs or abandons His people. He works in them and through them and for them for His glory and for their good. And so He's not given up on the work of sanctifying us and using us. He will bring us to our predestined end in Christ, which is our glorification. What we saw in Romans 8. But until that time and along the way, here's the reality, Christian, we're going to experience various thorns that will humble us. And if our thorns are of His providence, which they are, then we can trust that we also have His presence. William Cowper rightly said this, and I've used this quote before, but I'll share it again. It says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You see, seeing the bigger picture from God's promises is really a grace in itself. What if we didn't know that we had glorification? We didn't know for sure about heaven. If we didn't see our focus, our, our promised end, that would be miserable. But here's what Paul assures us of in Romans 8, 8, 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because here's the reality. All of the suffering and affliction that we endure, it all is temporary. It is going to have an end date. We look forward to that. But realizing the sufficiency of God's grace is vital to this. That's what Paul realizes. 
Notice with me, lastly, letter B, the reason for Paul's thorn. One is so that grace would be sufficient for him. God's grace would be sufficient for Paul. Letter B, we see that Paul's weakness was God's strength. Paul's weakness was what God used to manifest his power and his glory in his life. In verse 9, he says, God says to Paul, For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Doesn't that just kind of fly in the face of the natural thinking of man and the world? You see, God works in the opposite of the way that the world thinks. He takes weak to manifest His power, not the strong. One of the great examples of this is Gideon. How many of us know the story of Gideon? The book of Judges. The Midianites were persecuting them and they needed deliverance. And Gideon had an army of 22,000 men in which the army of the Gideonite, or the Midianites, they were more than the sand of the sea is what the Scripture says. And God says to Gideon, we're going to have to take this down from 22,000. That's too many. Narrows it down to 10,000. God says, guess what? That's still too many. He goes from 22,000 all the way down to 300. What logical sense does that make? None whatsoever. But God took and used those 300 men to defeat that entire army of the Midianites. Because he takes the weak and makes them strong. It's a paradoxical truth for us in our minds. Like many things in Scripture, we we see this. Weakness equals strength. Humility equals exaltation. Death leads to life. This is how God works. God manifested his power through a weakened Paul. And Paul was fine with that. And as we sung moments ago, who is our rock? It is Christ David said in Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Christian, that is for you too. He is your rock. He is your strength. And what is Paul's response to such a truth to him? In verse 9, the last half of this verse, notice what he says, Therefore, I will all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's heart is that Christ work in him, not Paul work out in his power. Because that's really what success in ministry and in the church and kingdom all boil down to. It ain't about the preacher, or even the people, it's about God in them working through them. We are nothing without Him. Nothing. Why was Paul used so powerfully for the gospel's sake? Why do we have such a powerful working of God in Paul in the New Testament, in the Scriptures, and in the missionary journeys? Why do we have that? The answer is because of his suffering. Because his suffering made him weak, by which God used his power mightily in him. And someone rightly said this. I thought it was good. What seems overwhelming now will be your testimony later. And that's the testimony of Paul. You look at verse 10 as we conclude. He further expresses his perspective this way, saying, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. Insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know about you, but I'm not really content all the time when I'm going through hard things. 
Paul says, I'm content with the hardship. I'm content with persecution. He's trusting God's providence. How can he be content with such? Most of us wouldn't be. Because in Paul's mind, he wants God to receive the maximum glory that he can get out of his life. And Christian, I hope that you understand that that ought to be the central conviction to your life, is that God receives maximum glory through you. Because the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And while we go through our thorns and while we endure our afflictions, we must accept God's providence in our life and continue to serve Him and worship Him and trust Him in all that we're called to do. Samuel Rutherford said this, and I'll close with this quote, Providence has a thousand keys to deliver, one, deliver His own when, even when all hope is gone. Let us be faithful and care for our own part, which is to do and suffer for Him, and lay Christ's part on Himself and leave it there. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. So Paul knows from experience the sufficiency of God's grace, that it is what makes him strong in his weakness. My prayer for us is that today we understand that God's providence in our own life, it is always good even though it may not feel good. And that His grace is always sufficient for us. So my challenge to us, church, is this. Do you trust the providence of God? I hope the answer is yes. If you do trust the providence of God, are you resting in the sufficiency of His grace? Are you looking to His grace for your strength? Let us stand to our feet as we close and prepare for a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning so thankful for the Word of God. I'm so thankful for truth that you've given us. I'm thankful, Lord, that you inspired Paul to give this example of his own experience in his life. It's a marvelous example and thing to ponder in the revelation he had, but even more so, Father, is how Paul in his weakness and his thorn in the flesh All of it was of your providence to make him be what he ought to be and to use him as you wanted to use him. Father, we all ought to be used by you. We ought to desire to be used by you as you want us to be used. Help us to submit, Father. Help us to trust your providence. Help us to seek your glory in every area of our life and to trust in the sufficiency of your grace for everything day by day. We pray it in Jesus' name.